Welcome back to Creative Welly. This is episode 12, the first one of 2021, people. My name is DK, and it's a pleasure to have you listening to the audio podcast of the video podcast that is Creative Welly. Courageous conversations with bold humans. The video podcast is produced by John O'Tucker over at Empire Filmed, and now we're hosted by David Hamilton at Flashdog Studios. In episode 12, we speak to Melissa Clark Reynolds, who is a futurist, and also Cesar Piotto, who is chief executive of Wellington Cable Car. We cover off business models, how to be a futurist, innovation, tourism, Wellington and the Wellington Cable Car, leadership, and all things in between. Enjoy. So how would you describe what both of you do for your day jobs and as a fly? Because you think asked about earlier. The future. Yeah. I do. You think, think about, about it? Future. Just think about it? Yeah, well, I do a lot of that. Like when I think about my actual day, mm. um, pretty much most days I get up, I read half a dozen things about what's going on in the world. I don't know. I get on Twitter. <laughs> this morning, on Twitter. I do. So this morning I'd read some really interesting stuff about um, I've got an interest in the future of the screen and future of media. I did a project for um, the industry a couple of years ago on that. Mm. And so I keep. Um, I, I subscribe to a lot of newsletters and things, so I read that. I read uh, some weird and interesting science stuff, and um, and then yeah, um, I spend a lot of time thinking. And then I work for a variety of organisations, mostly in the primary sector, mm. where I think about the future. So I do some work for Biosecurity New Zealand. I do some work for um, Kotahi, who are a joint venture between Silverfern and Fonterra. Um, I actually am doing some work for Flux Federation, and I've mm. just joined their advisory board, which is so nothing to do with the primary sector, but cool company doing great stuff. And so, yeah, so my I have a very short attention span, and I manage that by reading a lot and yeah. then thinking a lot. That's yeah. cool. I know. That's so officially, summary. I'm a futurist these days, and I work as a what I call a foresight practitioner. So. Yeah. I really spend a lot of time honing my skills, thinking about what the future is like, how we engage with it, how we get boards to engage with it, how senior management teams can think about it. Um, I did the strategy work for Napier Port a few years ago, and we're just coming around to review that and then do it again. And so I, I, I really love strategy, and um, yeah, so it's my day job. Is there a timeline? Like, are you thinking future five years, future 50 mm. years? Is there a... A yardstick that you... Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Like, um, I'm just training at the moment with uh, an organisation who do a lot more prediction. So, like, I started working on predictive analytics in the 1980s, right, mm. in terms of software analytics. And I I spent the first sort of 25 years of my career really in, in code and in big data sets and a lot of what's become machine learning and AI. And so I, I, I have that quant side where I'm really interested in how do we use the data to do, to do predictions and foresight. Mm-hmm. But I also have an anthropology degree, and so I'm really interested in patterns of culture, patterns of behaviour. And so futurists are kind of divided down the middle. There's mm-hmm. a, a big chunk who just say, really, it's about having conversations about the future it's about how we might think about creating preferred futures. And it's probably like any profession, you get people in their corners. So that's one corner. And then you get the other corner, which is probably more like the intelligence market. And it, it comes more out of perhaps military intelligence and out of banking and people who are, are trying to think about 
like clear predictions. Mm. And the people in the predictions market are obviously better at it in the shorter term than they mm-hmm. are in the longer term. But there are also some big arcs that you can see that happen perhaps over a 10 or 20 year period. So so I'm still sort of finding my way. I guess I'd, I tend a little more towards the let's have conversations about the future. Let's think about what preferred futures might look like and how we might create them. But I have a very big math brain, so I'm really interested also in that predictive side. And at the moment, most organisations, it's kind of never the twain shall meet. Mm. You know, they vehemently disagree with each other. <laughs> so I'm quite interested in how you hold mm. those contradictions. Yep. Yeah, great uh, question. And it's the yeah. richness of models out there at the moment oh, around yeah. foresight practitioner. And all. I know you spent some time with Clayton Christensen and that side of stuff. Yeah. And when you mentioned, you know, the, how far... Like you got the whole horizon model yeah. modeling, like horizon level one, two, and three, right? Um, so that's fascinating how robust this really what used to be kind of a little bit of a, um, a navel gazing exercise. Oh, yeah, that could happen, but yeah. come on, our risk can only extend to probably five, ten, depending production cycles, ten years or something. But now, yeah, 50 years, 100 years plan is not that unusual, horizon three. Whatever that is. And yeah. also I think what they've found, so I've worked with some iwi who are doing 500-year plans, yeah, there we you go. know, and I find mm. that really interesting. So it gives you another layer of freedom when you're thinking, well, we, what is it to be a good ancestor? Mm. What would we do today in order to ensure that um, future generations have the best chance of having great lives, you know? It's a kind of a different set of questions. Mm. But coming back, like, um, there's quite a bit of... So I've, I've just finished a course with IDEO this weekend okay. on strategy, which I really enjoyed. Um, but you know, I trained with the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, and then I've trained with a, an, another futurist called Sahel and Ayatollah, who works on um, kind of what our metaphors might be about the future and how we might talk about the future. And so there's a sort of... There are lots of different models out there. Mm. There's a really interesting book, if anyone's interested... Um, about super forecasters, which is really a guy who pitted a team of amateurs really against the CIA and beat the CIA hands down on a bunch of predictions. And that's the work that I'm just starting to train in at the moment. And what's interesting about that is the number one skill that seems to be there is actually curiosity. You know, it's a sense of wonder. And so I think if you do want to become a futurist, you know, the combination of of pattern recognition, which is basically to me what the math stuff is, or anthropology, they're both patterns, looking for patterns. And then you add that to deep curiosity and wonder. And I think you've you've pretty much got all of the, I mean, I hate to boil down tens of thousands of dollars of training I've done, but (laughs) I kind of reckon that's it. (laughs) The mad curiosity... And yeah, yeah. looking for patterns and curious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. you talked about like intergenerational thinking there, about mm. oh sorry, deep generational thinking about like the future generations and being a yeah. good ancestor. And we had Paul Atkins from Zealandia, oh, one of our mm. creative well, he talking about yeah. how you actualized a yeah. five hundred year plan. Yeah. What does that actually look like? And with them, they obviously are led by nature. So yeah. nature is their foil. Uh, which they lean into and go, well, it takes 500 years to replenish uh, an a historically yeah. lost kind of flora and fauna. Mm. So that's our aim. So yeah. we work backwards from there, uh, which is wonderful. That's correct. But in terms of business models and in terms of, 
you know, our economic cycles and mm -hmm. even our political cycles that influence economic cycles. What, four years, two years? But I think the nice uh, thing about getting older is like I, I st I've started my first company and um, and then, you know, I started a company in Southeast Asia and then what was called the Asian flu, 1997, the banking mm. collapsed and all my customers kind of collapsed and then I came home and I was in the tech industry and we had the big tech bubble crashes mm. and, you know, I've been through so many GFCs and tech crashes and blah, blah, blah now that you just do see that these things are cycles yeah. and, you know, and they can be a bit shit for a while but they always come out again mm. and they always turn to shit again. You know, and I think that's the thing is sometimes as humans we we value optimism, yeah. but actually, um, you know, you sort of need a little bit of that. Mm. Resilience doesn't just come from optimism. Resilience mm. also comes from being prepared when some things, you know, turn to crap. Yeah. That's anyway, enough about me. Tell me what you do for your day job. Like nothing just, as exciting as you. Yeah, I'm just fascinated. I don't know. Like I just want to say, like one of my earliest memories was because my um, my I, I grew up over in, in Northland, you know, in Wellington, and um, we used to catch the old cable car. Mm -hmm. And it had the leather straps on the outside, and you probably don't remember this, cause, but you used to have to pretty much jump on and jump off while it was moving, and oh, it right. had leather straps on the outside that you held onto, yeah. And, you know, when you're like a five-year-old or six-year-old, I could just be <laughs> utterly petrified that, because um, you've got to jump off, you know, and, yeah, but it was it Health was one of my safety. earliest memories, is mm. holding onto these leather straps sitting Seeing on the outside. Kicking the tunnels. Yeah, yeah, kicking the tunnel. Well, my legs weren't that long. Seriously, that, that was... What it was. Yeah, you could, it was. You could drag your feet. Once you got to a teenager, you could drag your feet along the edge of so the, the tunnels. So the original alignment of the tracks, they had two tracks? Mm. Right. Right now where we have one. But they only passed each other. They didn't, or maybe when I was alive anyway, we still, there was one track with a passing lane. Yeah. But yeah. The, the reason the tunnels are so wide is because they were built for two, ah. for two tracks. So uh -huh. what do I do? Um, I really connect to your statement with uh, having a short attention span. Right. Um, I am currently and have been here in Wellington for about nine months. Oh, yeah. Um, I started the role with the cable car um, just as we came out of level four. Right. Wow. Um, so you were lucky to get in. I, I was lucky to get in. Um, what I signed up for and what life is now is very different. Yeah, I mm. bet. Um, but it's, you know, curiosity, wonder... All of that stuff really resonates with me because it, it now forces you to think, okay, what is it now? Yeah. So I'm leading the team there and we've had to um, really change kind of how we see the world. Yeah. We, we were really successful, um, like a lot of businesses, right? Yeah. And, and you know, the buzzwords pivot, you've got to change, you've got to find your new self. It's sometimes it's easier than others. Yeah. Like, you know, you've got the distillery who's now making hand sanitizer so the cable car um, is a little bit more traditional yeah but there's so much cool stuff that we can do that the hardest thing is to actually get our public and our commuters to open their eyes to things that can be done on the cable right. car um, so having a good time with that yeah enjoying <laughs> wellington have have bounced around now this is our second stop in the north island right and then I've had a few stops in the South Island and then abroad. And mm -hmm. mm. Um, I've had a bit of a, a long uh, roundabout journey to get to New Zealand studying mm. on the other side of the world. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about that in a sec, but I'm really interested in like what else you can do on the cable car. 
<laughs> you know, um, what do you mean by that? So we've just partnered up with Wellington City Council with that. What if uh, the city was a theatre? Oh, yeah. And we held 12 performances mm. on the cable car, you know. So it was um, music, it was dance, um, you know, there was a DJ at one point. Mm-hmm. So it was quite different. Mm-hmm. We've, we've branched out and we're now holding some speed dating events on the cable car. Nice. <laughs> it turns out that six minutes is the optimal time <laughs> to meet and engage with someone before you need to... Before it gets awkward. So, so for, <laughs> before it gets... <laughs> Um, so for us, it's really been about what is it that we can do. So we've just had some inquiries about weddings. We've just nice. had some. Inqu- we had a, a private event, but also, um, you know, we have this phenomenal venue up at Kelburn. Yeah. And, and DK and I have sometimes mm. spoken about, you know, if you want a an inspirational place to go there and get mm. some creative people and get the juices flowing. It's beautiful view, right? Oh, the view That's is amazing. The thing that... You can see and you can get. You know, 30 people up there, you've got glass everywhere, you can brainstorm. So we, we've got these amazing assets that we want to now be able to share with, with yeah. the community and go, yeah. okay, let's, let's get some cool people connected, um, which we'll come back to, I think, that yeah. the TEDx side of things and, you know, we're, we're doing some stuff with... I mean, most of my connections have come through DK in Wellington. No, he's such a super connector. You <laughs> yeah. are. You're a super I'll connector. Go but and talk to people. Get yeah. out of the way, right? Get yeah, out of the way. But as a skill. And then if I boil it down, I, I, I think what I try to do is, is bring the future into actionable present. Yeah, nice. Um, That's nice. I don't... I, I can't even get my head around what you do. And I, hopefully <laughs> I will in 90 minutes. <laughs> But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I've just started talking to some people about an AR project oh, cool. at Kelvin. Cool. Um, and see how can we bring the city to life? Um, or how can we make sure that, you know, it, there's, there's engagement there in, in different ways? Yeah. Um, well, nice. you're dealing with a palette that's quite historic, right? So 119 years Oh. Just had our birthday. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wellington Cable Car Company or Limited or I don't know what you would call <clears throat> well, the, cable car thing. It's it's <laughs> had various incarnations yeah. over the years. Right. Different ownerships. And who um, owns it now? Uh, so we we are designated as CCO. Right. So council. We we're very fortunate that we we're pretty autonomous. Yeah. We're a really small team. Yeah. For a massive throughput of customers, visitors, mm. communities. How many? Give us a sense. Pre-COVID times, almost 1.2 million. Yeah, and my sense of that was very much it was a tourism play. I mean, is that what it was? It, look, it, I think, like a lot of tourism companies, we grew with tourism yeah. and rode that wave. Yeah. Um, the cable car kind of straddles tourism operation, kind of straddles a public transport operation, mm. straddles a leaving museum piece. Right. Um, and with, with having so many masters, it becomes difficult yeah. to please everyone yeah. at the same time or at any given time. Yeah. So it was very much a, a, a tourism offering um, and will continue to be. It is iconic. It's, you know, mm. when you travel and you think going to Paris, I'm going to go up the Eiffel Tower or maybe not now, but... Yeah. Um, I'm going to go into the Statue of Liberty or I'm going to yeah. cross the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. You come to Wellington and you go up the cable car. Got right. it. 
Um, so there's there's a this really deep connection to to Wellington mm. as a city mm. and, and Wellingtonians. I always champion it as a connecting piece mm -hmm. because yes, you can add in the historical mm. layer to it, the living museum, the the tourism aspect of you just got to do it. But it also connects a beautiful place to mm. the centre of the city, and it's so different the two aspects of yeah. that. So you start on Lambton Key, obviously, you go in, you go, okay, cool, you go up this thing, suddenly the vista opens up, you can see yeah. the city, you can see the city city situated in the harbour side, so you have a sense of space and place and blah, 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 and you get to the top and you're in the gardens. Mm. And it's so, totally different. And that's always arrested me in a sense of this kind of like, how, how unique is that as an experience? I'm thinking about Naples as a, a, a I went to Naples years ago and it's like really dirty and gritty, proper Italian is great. But you walk up the hill and it's beautiful up mm. and it's like you look down on the harbour and it's yeah. like a beautiful view, but it's peaceful up there right. compared to what it was down there. And that's what I get that maybe um, maybe there's an angle there and I'm not, this is not a workshop, but I was just yeah. like thinking out loud when you were saying those are the three, maybe there's a fourth one, which is that connecting to two different aspects of the city. Mm. So, so that's something that I tried to seed when I started here was everyone had been so successful just because of the growth of tourism. Mm. So everyone right. was really operating in silos. And now mm. that once you get up there, there's a whole host. Gardens, yes, yep. amazing. You can walk down. You know, you talk about mental well-being. You can get out of the city. Mm. Five minutes, you're up there. Fifteen-minute walk through the garden. If that's not a reset, yeah. you know, and if you have the presence of mind to go for my afternoons turning pear shaped, I'm going to take half an hour and just yeah. do a loop. Mm. You, you'll immediately see the difference. But then, you know, for families as well, you've got the museum, you've got space place, mm. you've got, you talked about Paul and Zelandia. So we've got that free oh, yeah. link, shuttle, transport yeah. link, right? Um, and then Calvin itself has got a couple of nice little bars and eateries mm. and, and things like that. So what we started to do um, is connect the whole Calvin precinct and we catch up once a week or once a month. Right. And we have a chat around how do we take this on our own hands and, mm. and provide an offering. Nice. And what's been cool is um, we've gotten in touch with MedService, right? right? So MedService have their HQ up there. Yeah. They have 160 okay. staff. So the biggest employer up there. Yeah. And they use the cable car a lot. But what they, what their mission is now is to connect a lot more with people. Right. So mm. they have probably the most visitor website in the country. Mm. They have a full production suite, green right. screen. So, you know, and that, they're talking about how can we get people to come up here? How can we do an open day right. once every couple of months, once a quarter, that kind of stuff. The people that are based at um not the observatory is it the crop the original observatory the brick building so you got two of them haven't you you're You've talking about carter, not space place not space or not carter no. the other one okay mm. don't know that one um so the guys are there they've joined our group and underneath they've got all of these historical military artifacts and oh, they're really? like how can we open oh, wow. this up right so as a conversation, how can we work together and provide mm. this value yeah, nice. for Wellingtonians I've, who've been in the cable car many times or yeah. who haven't ridden the cable car for... To be honest, I was thinking, I actually think I've ridden it in like 20 years. Oh. 
Well, I think because wow. I think that my perception was that it became a tourism thing rather than a commuter thing somewhere in that. Because I, I did course, just yeah. catch yeah. it up to the university and back, and it yeah. was sort of the same price as a bus. And I remember somewhere mm. back there that it became priced as a more of a a kind of, there was a ticket and you could get a, I don't know, the, I, this is long before you obviously, but you could get some sort of like commemorative ticket or something and it all just right. it all just suddenly stopped to me back then and feeling like a commuter thing. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, actually I just haven't, I haven't, because I was thinking, why haven't I been on it? Mm. And I just well, thought, that's... I don't think about it as being a, um, a transport option, yeah. which is weird because that was how I saw it probably for the first 30 years of my yeah. life. I was going to mention yeah. that, in a sense, what COVID has done for mm. your focus, right, is focus inward, at the, not just the domestic tourism play, but also a local yeah. Wellingtonian yeah. uses play. How can we attract back the people who are already yeah. here to reimagine their use of? It's, um, mm. so we, and we're not going to get into kind no, of the, the pricing and all of that. but I'm not, you know. But you're, what yeah. you've just said, I probably hear half a dozen times a day. I bet. And it it is, it's, we need to do better at communicating what it is that we're doing and and who we are. But um, what what I say, if people haven't been here, or haven't ridden the cable car for 20 years, what's what's really cool is when you get a grandparent coming in, I'm getting visited (laughs) here, um, coming in and sharing those stories like when they started, with their grandkids, yeah. mm. that is so cool, and that's yeah. really priceless. Like, yeah. think of how many places you can go yeah. that you've got shared intergenerational experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, grandparents. That's where I went to university, yeah. or I lived here at Weir House. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I went. You know, I used to yeah. come up here and get in trouble and yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. <laughs> no, it is. It's lovely. It, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's really special, really yeah. unique. Um, yeah incredibly temperamental. <laughs> well, I think sometimes it's that thing, isn't it, that we um, become successive of our own branding. You know, that's mm. sort of part mm. of what I was thinking, is that that was a very successful brand play at some point. Which mm. and, and one of the things I know about strategy is strategies work till they don't, yep. you know, and you don't mm. always know when they don't. But, but I think they had a really good, clear value proposition and strategy at some point. And the difficult bit is that... Um, the public at large, including myself, and, and this happens in every industry, this is not just about you, but if we have sold some great brand and we've sold a great brand story, it's actually quite hard for us to reimagine the next one too, mm-hmm. even when that story has done its thing, you mm. know? And so, yeah, I think that's, that's the evolvement of, the... of stories in itself. Yeah. You know, you will find it's become an icon, this Wellington cable car. Yeah. It's on postcards. It's been stylized in other things yeah. uh, in so many different campaigns that you probably haven't been involved with. It's just something. Yeah. Ah, like, oh, that's what yeah, I'm yeah, doing. Fresh right, cool. <laughs> but you're right. It's how yeah. much control of your own story do you have yeah. when it becomes an icon and it goes out there for over a hundred years? What's the next iteration of that, and how much can you influence? Well, and when everyone has an opinion, right? And yeah. this is not just about you, but you know, it can be the same. You yeah. know, I spend most of my life in the farming sector to be on the board of beef and lamb and stuff and so you know it's the same people have a particular view on what farming is or how people farm and yeah. you know and um and now they've been sold a story that they believe and i'm not saying it's true or false i want to be clear here but it can be very hard for them to take on a different narrative mm. you know and mm. I think that, yeah i think that happens to all of us um, 
I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. wife is showing that I bought one narrative, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, we all do it. It becomes easy. We're sort of lazy brains, really. We, <laughs> we put a metaphor or a narrative yeah. into our brains and then we stick with that. Especially if it's a feel-good story, right? Yeah. You want to run with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and go. So it is, um, I think to your point, DK, um, one of the things we're trying to be purposeful about is not trying to control it because it doesn't right. belong to us. We've actually just Gosh. gone through um, a little bit of a, a reflect, you right. know, COVID has provided the time for us to reflect. Um, but for us, one of our values is very clear now is that we're just kaitiakis of this. Right. We, yeah. we're, we're just, the batons passed to us. We're going to pass the baton over. So there's obviously, there's a part which is all the regulatory stuff. Yeah. We've got to make sure it's safe. It's got yeah. to tick the boxes. Right. It's got to okay. do all that. And it's, that's incredibly difficult if you know how hard it is to get a 40-year-old car waft. Imagine a 40-year-old cable car yeah. that all of the drawings are in German, right? right? So there's some <laughs> complications there. But then it's, it, we want it to be whatever it is to you, yeah. whether mm. it's a, um, a, an experience as a child or grandparent or parent, whether it's a tourist, right. whether it's, you know, I love connection, people that go up there and have their dates in the gardens, yeah. whether it's whatever it is. So we're, we're trying to reinvent that but not have ownership. Yeah, right. that's um, nice. And I don't, I, I mean... It's I tricky it, though, right? It, it is. It's really tricky because it's, um, it's that thing about, yeah, if you try to be like too kind of jellyfish, bit of everything, mm. you know, it makes it hard for people to see themselves in there. Yeah, on the other hand, I totally get not wanting to exclude people from the story either. Yeah. It's a, that's a, mm. it's a hard line to write, you mm. know, hard line to follow. Well, even the positioning of Kaitiaki, you know, that guardianship. And I know when you first started, you had to get involved in all the nuts and bolts of the mechanics of redoing something. You were up for your tenure or whatever, five years maintenance. And it's like a waff, like you just said, and you were telling me about that. It's like, okay, that's your first gig when you get involved. That's, that's hard to kind of get your head around, but now you're thinking much bigger in terms of what is this going to evolve into? But like the Kaitiaki angle, it's lovely uh, that we got these things to steer us in terms of strategy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. these, these phrases we all now start to understand and start to, I suppose, give us comfort yeah. and then direction. And secondly, um, which is the strategy that I'm hearing from you, mm -hmm. that you're yeah. evolving And, and we're writing it on the fly. You know, what has COVID done for us? Come mm. back to that question. We, I mean, we're struggling with visitation, which means that we're struggling with revenue, really, like yeah. many companies. Um, the, the impact that these levels have as far as social distancing um, have an impact, but it also has an impact on our staff. Mm. And then that has a direct impact on the customer experience, yeah. you know? So we're trying to find the balance of, of how we do it. And, you know, you said strategy works until it no longer does. Yeah. And sometimes you've, overst you've overstayed your welcome and you're like, oh, I should have probably called it quits yeah. mm. back there. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're trying to figure out how to move forward in a world that, you know, may have open borders, may not have may open not, borders. Yeah. Um, Auckland goes into shutdown, there's no domestic tourists, you know, so yeah. what is that and what can we do? And cool. 
Yeah. So how did you end up in here? Like, you know, you, you said you had a few stops along the way. Like, so so I, tell me most about recently, your story. Uh, if I go backwards, yeah. um, I have this most amazing and incredible wife right. who is so patient and a saint. She really <laughs> should be sainted. But um, I most recently have spent a few years in the North Island and mm. was involved with the Whakapapa ski area. Ah, cool. So we worked, uh, I was there on the team that worked and, and helped develop the ski area and through the Skywalker build. Mm-hmm. Previous to that, uh, I was back in Queenstown in tourism, but in yeah. inbound tourism, trying to get Latin America. Oh, yeah. And so Latin to us meant South America and Portugal and Spain coming to New Zealand. Right. Previous to that, I had uprooted the family and spent a year in China opening oh, wow. a new ski resort. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, my, my background, uh, my first kind of degree, I guess, was in computer science. Right. And then I spent 10 years following the snow as a ski instructor. And also, do you miss the snow? Because it feels like this is your sort of first leap out of the snow. You know, in Wellington, we're not that close mm. to any skiing. I mean, I know you can drive up to Whakapapa, but, yeah. but it's not. I lived in Christchurch for a few years. And it was like 30 minutes door-to-door, house-to-first yeah. sharelift, yeah. you know. It's kind of whereas you've really got to make a big plan here, whereas yeah. we could literally look out the window and call in sick, and you know. <laughs> 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 nice. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean... Mountains are my happy place. Yeah. Um, we miss it. Skiing is part of what our family does. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll continue to do that. But it was also um, a good opportunity. You know, my wife is has some more opportunities here, and she's mm-hmm. just finishing off her studies. And my daughter's getting to the age where, you know, Wellington is is really well suited to her as well. Yeah, cool. So, and and we move around a lot, as in. You know, we're not here, we're, we're not static, so we'll run up to the mountains. I just came back from Abel Tasman last week, nice. you know, so that's the cool thing about New Zealand. You're not really that mm. far from where, the, you know, if you're connected to the ocean or the mountains yeah. or lakes or yeah. tramping, then we can... So I was just going to ask to further the dis- discussion into your background, get your take on the difference in terms of culture from where you started, which is Chile, but then you went over, came to here, sorry, and then you were, your experience in China specifically, like the cultural learnings of your journey, are you seeing differences, similarities? Do you bring that into your new role? Like, what's your... So, um, Brazilian, Brazil, born sorry. in Brazil. Born in Brazil, but you... South American right. companies, countries, yeah. they're all the same. It's, gosh, terrible. No, it's not. That's I, all right. I, We're all friends. We're all thank friends. you. As long as it's not Argentinian. Yeah. Know, yeah. Right. Let, Jose that, will have a shout out this, to Jose yeah. right there. Yeah. Um, Brazilian. But so, in short, yes, totally. And, mm. um, you know, Latins, fiery, you know, we talked about that, you know, moving your hands around. <laughs> Emotive, you wear your heart on the sleeve. You go up and you go down. Um, had I was able to use that to my advantage when I spent 10 years in the States, living and working in ski resorts there. And it was, you were able to craft that into your own brand and they loved it. Yeah. <laughs> in, in fact, it's almost the, the more obnoxious you were, the more they loved you. Wow. And, you know, so that was quite different. 
Um, Doesn't work so well here. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I suppose the disconnect. Yeah. Whatever I thought I knew about China, spending time there, I mm. realised that I didn't know. Um, and that was probably my biggest slice of humble pie I've eaten in my career. In what way? <clears throat> Just how they go about business, what they do, how they navigate their decision making, what drives decision making. Right. Um, you know, a really simple example, um, the, the chairman of the board who, I, uh, who hired me to, to take this role, and the resort was being developed, so I had nothing to do with the infrastructure, okay. but I was there to lead up a lot of the customer-facing stuff. Mm. And, you know, I came in with this Western view of optimization and, and getting things running smoothly yeah. and safely and things like mm. that. And, you know, at a very, very simplistic level, what was success for them was that everyone had a job. Yeah. So where we ran Coronet Peak, and it was a similar size resort at the time with, let's say, 150 people, we were running that size resort in China with 550 people. Yeah. So, wow. Um, but they were reaching, they, they, they were achieving success. Yeah. Because everyone had a job, everyone had a, you know, something to do. And okay. it didn't matter that three of them were not present where they should have been <laughs> at any given time. <laughs> but they, you know, so, and then how I went about to navigate my own frustrations when things didn't work out. And they, so, yes, it, it's, it's changed. And then um, to round it out, Papa, I had... Um, some amazing mentors, especially as we dealt with the local iwi. And I, I right. was fascinated and, and loved their approach. You know, we talked about generational thinking. You know, they look at the monga and it's it's not a mountain, it's a being. And what we do and how we treat it and the respect that we show for it is, you know, it should be in everything that we do. Yeah. Um, so some of the stuff that we try to get across there and thinking more long-term and involving the local community and making sure that um, if we were successful, that was shared out equally amongst the local, whether they were food suppliers, whether they were workers, where there was opportunities to open doors for some of the local kids to go travel internationally, you know, to other resorts and things like that. So, yeah, the whole cultural piece has changed. Mm. Now I'm learning local government. We'll leave that. Can we move to back to you? Off the All those cultural things, they, they help us. You know, I think, I don't know, the, uh, as you were talking, I was thinking even like there'll be a different culture in the ski industry than there will be mm. in some other industry in New Zealand or, you know, there'll be these kind of subcultures that, that operate, I don't know, yeah, and they're different. And then, you know, when we change roles or we change industries, we kind of have to learn a whole new culture, and some of it is a whole new language that is the specialised language that goes with it. But you also get some quite different cultures as you go, you know. Mm. I mean, you'd find out with farming, yeah. right? Like yeah. farmers have, they have their own little culture and comes together with their own language not that they're not speaking... No, but it you know, is but a specialised kind of language, I agree. Yeah. And, and what's near and dear to them 
and, and what's the way valuable. they live. And I think, you know, even between dairy and sheep and beef, they are quite culturally different, you know. They've got lots of common um, common aspirations and, and, you know, makes it like they work together well. But I think, again, they are different. I was in Wairoa last week at a... Um, farming expo in the AMP grounds, you know, and it was just quite funny hearing like people speaking. Um, one of my really good friends, Amy Charteris, is a sheep geneticist, and you know, so there would have been probably a good hundred people turned up to listen to that. Um, and then there was somebody else talking about dairy systems, and a whole different crowd turned up to that, you know, mm. it's sort of that's yeah, specialism, but also the, the way they work. The way they, what they consider a good day's work, you know, mm. all of the, that language is different too, not just the specialist language, but so that, I find it quite different. Does that change how then you see the future, depending on where they are or how they do work or where they want to go? I think it does, and I don't want to offend anyone in the industry, but you know, Sorry, I come I from the outside. No, but it's fair enough. Um, you know, I think there's some real differences around. Um, I don't know, you know, around yield or around, like your metrics on the farm are different, so you think about them differently. Um, I probably know the sheep and beef industry better, and my experience in sheep and beef is, well, 30% of New Zealand's native forest sits on our private sheep and beef farms. So, you know, I know, so things like that, it's almost the same size as the um, conservation estate. Mm. And we often don't think about that, yeah. And so sheep and beef farmers, um, I think it's one of those things that's surprising, you know, it's just how much land they've covenanted or put into forest. Um, and I'm not talking here about forest that's going to be felled. I'm talking here about, mm. like, perpetual forest. Mm. And um, and then the same, you know, they farm on very different country, you know, so hill country farming is quite different, I think, than living on the flat, you know. Yeah, so those yeah. they have different approaches to perhaps land management and things. You know, I'm really privileged to sit on the board of a meat company and um, the meat industry, I have to say, has got its own real culture. It's very old-fashioned, it's very male, um, it's generally been a um, an extractive type industry, you know, where you're just thinking, how do I, how do, I do the biggest throughput? And mm. it's a commodity play. And what we've seen over the last 20 years is the emergence of a number of smaller companies like Atkins, where I am, but... First Light and um, Greenlee and Topo Beef and um, Tamana Lamb and Spring Coastal Lamb and we've seen more of this rise in the last sort of 20 years of small brands doing really specialty interesting stuff and so for Atkins you know we really we do no GMO we do antibiotic free and fully grass fed meat um, and we do the highest what's called GAP um, for the highest animal welfare standards in the world. And then, um, and we get a fantastic price for it. But we also know that our farmers love to farm that way. It's not an ex- sort of. It's a. Mm. It's they think long term about mm. their farms. They're um, they're really looking after their land, and I think it's a bit of a revelation for many um, city dwellers to actually sit down and talk with real farmers. You know, I think they have a view that all farming is somehow bad, and 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 it's really not. Yeah. You know, I'd say when you talk about kaitiakitanga. Um, Particularly, you know, a lot of farmers really do take these very long-term intergenerational views of their farms too. So, and I'm not to say that there aren't some who are just, um, yeah, good old fly. You know, there are some that are, you know, obviously polluting our waters and all sorts of stuff. But, um, but that's not, it's not my experience of the norm. 
Mm. You know? I was I was checking out the Atkins Ranch oh, yeah. stuff and yeah. distributing to San Francisco mainly, yeah. right? As, yeah. a, as a product and well, we and only have three staff in New Zealand and we have thirty five in San Francisco. Amazing and yeah. the specialty, like you say, yeah. the higher, the highest level of care for the animals and all these other things. What I was fascinated by is the maybe comparison and might be a yeah. wrong one right. to the the kind of uh, the beer industry, right. your artisan beer. Yeah, we our, have a lot less beards. From a business tattoos. model perspective, maybe I was going for there. Is that if you think Our about <laughs> if you think about generally uh, what meat used to be, it was just generic, right? Yeah. It was just uh, by a, a lamb, and that was it. A leg of lamb didn't really think yeah, about where it was from, how it was farmed. It was just like a leg of lamb. Yeah. And beer were probably the yeah. same twenty years ago, right? Just yeah. beer, go to the pub, but it was just one tap, and that was it. You know, yeah. away you go. But nowadays we're getting a lot more literate about these things like coffee, beer, and yeah, yeah. Wellington's amazing chocolate. for that. And now, oh yeah, chocolate, thank you. And then now, yeah. same with lamb, same with well, these I think specialties. I the thing about, you know, coming back to what I do with strategy is, um, you know, there's that famous old ice, ice hockey, um, you know, the Gretzky quote, like, you want to be where the puck's going, going to be, not yeah. where it is today. Got that. I know, oh, it's ridiculous, this thing. Um, don't spray me, right? No. Anyway, um, but what you see is that, um, that I think, when we think about the future, people want to know what's going to happen. But actually the future is full of contradictions, right? So the future, when I look at, at things like what we're going to eat, the future is a massive rise in veganism and good prices for specialty meat. And they don't have to go, they're not contradictory, do you know? So we've seen that, um, like, even in the last year, there's been about a 30% increase in the sale of vegan food globally, but actually only about a 2 or 3% increase of people becoming vegans. So do you see what I mean? Like, wow. so, so people are eating more plant-based food. Mm. Yeah. But at the same time, when we look at, at somebody like an Atkins Ranch, we cannot fulfill the demand we have for our meat. So we could probably sell almost twice as many lamb racks as we've got. Um, and that's people wanting high-end, delicious, mm. ethically farmed food. And so the two can be in the same universe. Mm. And I think that sometimes we want to think there's one future. Like, and that's part of what I'm interested in, what you guys are doing, that there's not like just tourism or just domestic or, oh, it's a transport option or it's an entertainment option. Um, the real future is much messier. And, and it's always, to me, it's much more like and, and. So, mm. you know, um, there's room for that commodity meat, but there's yeah. also a huge space for specialised brands, specialised mm. flavours. You know, I like um, this brand, Tamana, if you can get it down in the South Island, they feed it on chicory, and so it's got a particular flavour. Or the Spring Coastal Lamb, you know, it's got salt in it because the, the animals are being farmed by the sea. And so right, think about okay. Welsh lamb, which yeah, is yeah. amazingly delicious. You know, mm -hmm. they've done a really great job of marketing, you know, yep. the flavours of Welsh lamb and salt lamb. And, you know, and so I think there's room, like what we're seeing, I think, is a um, move away from that straight commodity product, mm. it's meat, to we're seeing people think of it as food. And we're also, I'm hoping that we'll see 
people actually eat less meat, which is not a popular opinion in the meat industry, let me tell you now. But I think people should eat less meat and they should pay more for their meat and they should thoroughly reward a farmer for doing fantastic land management, for looking after the soil, looking after the people, for looking after the animals, looking after the water, for planting big chunks of it in native bush and so on. And that should be in the price of the meat that we pay. And we should think, you know, this is something that we do on a Sunday or something that we do when we're hanging out with friends Mm. or something. And, you know, I really do think it's fine to be vegan the rest of the week. In fact, you know, I don't eat... Or on Sunday, yeah, get that leg of lamb or that. Yeah, yeah you know, it's a real treat. Yeah. yeah, and I think we then think about, instead of thinking about it as meat, we're thinking about it as pleasure and we're thinking yeah. about flavour and we're thinking about family and we're thinking about friends. Mm. And so when I look at my favourite butcher shops around the world, there's some amazing butcher shops in London, um, Ginger Pig, N16, that they really are in the food business, you know. They sell mm. beautiful wine and they sell incredible cheese and... And they're selling you a meal, not some, you know, piece of flesh or something. Indeed. So, so on yeah. top of that, what about lab-grown meat? Well, Talking about I just future think there's a real and place for it, you know, I really do. Um, you know, one of the ones I'm watching really closely is two startups, one in Singapore and one in Israel that I've been watching for a while. Um, if we put meat aside for a moment, I mm-hmm. think the biggest disruption is actually going to come into the dairy industry. So if you think about it, um, you know, a lot of what we do with dairy is we make things like casein from the whey and mm. we do infant formula. Um, and so, you know, what if um, you could just make bioidentical breast milk? And so there are two companies I'm watching, one in, one in Israel, one in Singapore, who are lab growing um, the breast milk. So one company's gone down the route of lab growing the substrates for formula companies to use Mm -hmm. and the other one's gone another track which is that you could basically clone your own so if you were unable to breastfeed for some reason or if you have to go back to work and you really do want to feed your kid for the first two years which is kind of we know that breast milk's optimal especially you know the longer you can breast milk for the healthier the child is as an adult Mm. and I don't mean until they're 10 or something let me be clear Um, but you know there are there's so much evidence around this so if you could um, if you could lab-grow breast milk, I think that just makes so much sense. And I kind of didn't get the lab-grown milk at the beginning because I was mm-hmm. like, why lab-grow bioidentical milk when there's already milk? But mm. I can also see now making the ingredients, like making casein or whey um, in a lab, I, I really do think that that stuff is going to be so much cheaper than the production of milk yeah. that that's going to be disrupted. Now, coming back to my and-and that I said before, mm-hmm. is I still think there's a real place for artisan at scale, which is what New Zealand could do. Yeah. So New Zealand could do like phenomenal high-quality milk, right? Did, yeah. But you do that at scale, but not necessarily at the kind of volume that we might be doing now, and that gets tricky. And then the last bit, of course, is that um, we are going to have to destock, which is also not a very popular opinion in the farming sector often. But um, in order to make climate commitments, we are going to have to destock. And so I think there is a role for some of this lab-grown material, um, particularly things like infant formula. You know, I think think growing breast milk makes just a ridiculous amount of sense. Well, before coming to New Zealand, I didn't understand the existence of something like a Frontera. Yeah. And... A, did they exist in my brain before I arrived here? No, and then B, yeah. it's like trying to get my head around why they exist and how they came about and yeah. then the scale of it. Yeah. 
is just phenomenal and the, the agreements they have both with the government and being private and it's kind of this odd middle yeah. ground and the power they have yeah. and the scale of the distribution uh, to the world that New Zealand has and the primary industry sectors is yeah. one of our the well, we biggest. still, you know, we go on right. about tech, and I spent so much of my career in tech, but, you know, our food production as an export earner to New Zealand just smacks tech every day. Yeah. Every day. <laughs> you know, no matter what measure you use. So is that why you, because I could, when I went through your LinkedIn, by the way, have a go through <laughs> Melissa's LinkedIn. It's just like, Short reveal five thing. more, reveal yeah. five <laughs> more, reveal five more. It's the longest LinkedIn I've ever giving, seen. It? It's a gift that keeps on giving. I just hate CVs. I'm just like, anyone who wants a CV now, I'm like, just go to yeah, LinkedIn. Yeah, like, just, just see. Yeah, no, just search it. But I was trying to see a track yeah. relating to... Oh, People and Planet. That's my track. I so, suppose what I wanted to ask yeah. you then is why New Zealand Lamb... Well, that was your first kind of... Well, they kind of came and found me. Um, but like beef and I, lamb, right? So, so, yeah, so yeah. I, mean, I did an anthropology degree and then I did a master's in a mixture of epidemiology so, and environmental management. And oh, so okay. I really specialised in environmental epidemiology, which is why, you know, the whole pandemic thing, you know, this is... This was caused by an environmental issue. Mm. You know, agriculture, it's not popular again, but agriculture caused this, right? Mm. And um, when we put together climate change and our expansion, and particularly South America, you know, I'm watching. I have Google alerts, so this is my nerdy day, but I have Google alerts, you know, looking for novel zoonoses. And when we think about what's going on in South America and the expansion into rainforest, and we're taking mammals into habitat they've never lived in before, and we're mixing them with other mammals, you know, we are creating these pandemics. Like, like we humans created this one, hands down. And we're going to create the next one. And so, you know, I'm actually scanning for these all the time. They come every three, three and a half years. This mm. one arrived right on time. Um, it's another three and a half thousand coronaviruses and bats. We're continuing to move into habitat where we haven't lived, where mm. cows and sheep and pigs and haven't lived and we're taking, you know, those diseases and we're mixing them together and then we're bringing those animals back to us. Gotcha. Oh, it's a whole other topic, but, yeah. but that's the link. So the link mm. for me is that, you know, I, I moved into software when I graduated from university because there really was no great epidemiological software. I wrote software for actuaries and I wrote software for, like, running big kind of, you know, health insurance mm. and stuff. And um, and it was I only got there because I was wanting to actually model stuff. I was like, how do you do early modelling on a mainframe in the, right. you know, 1990? Like, it was horrendous, right? And so that's the track when I look back. And so I've uh, is really around, you. Yeah. you know, particularly like a, a people and planet, but around like the health, environmental health of the planet, environmental health and how that impacts people. It makes people. sense now with that's that as core. a purpose, driving you then into the New Zealand and uh, lamb and beef area, which then expanded you into lots of other areas. Because yeah. you sit on quite a few boards now and... Uh, you also spend your time and you spoke at Creative Leadership yeah. a couple of years ago on the, the creative business models out there. So you've got this kind of multi-dimensional kind of I'm track. Just like, I love that Einstein quote, not to compare myself to Einstein, but he says, you know, I have no specific talent or no peculiar talent. <laughs> I'm just deeply curious. And yeah. that's it. That's you know, lovely. I'm just like, wow, I wonder how that works. I wonder how that works. And of course, at school, that was a complete pain in the ass, right? You're not supposed to be that curious. But as an adult, I've managed to find a way to make that mm. work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, if I can I take it in a totally different Yeah, do. Because you've you've mentioned curiosity and wonder and, and that a couple of times and I've I've found myself I have an eight year old daughter. Awesome. <clears throat> and um 
we were looking at Perseverance Land. Oh, yeah. And I looked at her and I was like, in your lifetime, there'll be a person standing where that robot is. And yeah. she just went, whoa, what do you mean? Yeah. And um, we've, we've often taught, I, I try to talk to her about um, the greatest gift that I can give you is to be a problem solver, to yeah. be curious, to be, um, to ask the why and understand it by just before doing, you know, we, you, totally. you say, look, your job hasn't been invented and, and there's yeah. no context on that. So um, I really like totally. that. And I, I think how, how do we bring that to the, this, this generation and, and not so much the kids, because I think they'll get it. Yeah, they're intuitive. They're gonna they're gonna go with the flow. They're gonna um, they're gonna be used to technology changing every year, or you know, yeah, really rapidly, yeah. really quickly, and adapting. Yeah. But how do we bring it to this generation that are probably either business leaders or just about to become business leaders, and so that we accelerate to meet these challenges because yeah. if we go in that kind of linear trajectory yeah at some point you know it's like the guy who runs really fast and i'm not really fast yeah. i just see him get smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> yeah. and then they disappear yeah yeah you know i that? love that well for me i think it's interesting because the answer for our children to me is to really um and it comes back to creativity that um, i always think that imagination is more important than knowledge mm. And yet what I've seen to my dismay over the last 15 years or so in our education system in New Zealand going down things like national standards routes or NCA is very much about knowledge. It's about how do you like master the, the content of a particular topic. And I've seen our kids, so I had, I've got kids who are 18 years apart, so they're two different generations in the school system. And the first one, when he went through, it was still very much child-centred it was, I don't, you had kind of, I don't know, you had exams when you turned 15, you know, mm. there was, it wasn't like big testing, you know, and the, I mean, his school reports were very much around what sport he was playing or something, like, but they, I didn't really care, like, he, he read, he seemed to be fairly interested in the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, he took himself off to university, and, and he's been incredibly successful in a creative career, like, internationally successful, done brilliantly. Um, my daughter, 18 years later, I watched her go through a school system where she was tested from four or something regularly. Did you meet the standard? Did you not? Did you do this? Mm. And I, I am not surprised that that generation's got anxiety. Mm. You know, they're very different. And parenting that two generations was so different. So they've got this anxiety, but they've also got this fear that they might choose the wrong thing. And, you know, I saw um, with my daughter that she was very... Um, quick and so it was like well then you do two maths and three sciences and then you end up in a real little kind of funnel and so like she did the IB, the International Baccalaureate and part of what I liked about that is it forces you to do an art our social science, our science our maths, you know our foreign language and your own and so you have to do a bit of everything. And I think that is our future, is how do we have our children... Like, so she studied biology and creative writing. You know, how do you... How do you we, we've got to bring those, you know, the storytelling that we talked about earlier. So for me, when I look at our next generation, is to make sure they don't get pigeonholed into some sort of, I don't know, techno-science nightmare future. And I love science, and I'm, you know, and I've taken it right through to my master's myself. But... 
but I also am grateful for that anthropology. You know, I think we need those dualities, and I, I see in great leaders today's leaders is that they're willing to play with, um, with ambiguity and complexity, mm. and also they're willing to collaborate. And I feel like we're in an era of collaboration. You know, when I first got into the software industry, it was all bigger than Ben Hur ERP systems and stuff. And now I see we all do open APIs and we bodge half a dozen things together and we, we see that the, the IP is in how we do that, mm. not necessarily trying to build huge solutions. And so I loved when you were talking about what you're doing with Kelvin, you know, those ecosystems plays. To me, that's the future of, of leadership or, or for the next period of time anyway, is not, you know, and you talked about, oh, we don't own it, like they own it. That is where I see leadership emerging, and and you may not even do it consciously. I don't, you know, but it is to me. I was hearing all of your language in there, and that to me is good leadership. Like that's oh, yeah, I mean that, you know. And those ecosystems, platforms. How do we join? It's the age of integration, not the age of invention. Mm. I think I'm gonna. So yeah, I'm just go. gonna take over for a little bit. Take it. Yeah, take go it. for it. But just to connect back. You you had talked about Silverlight, Topor. Did you ever come across Wahipukawa Farms? No. So they're there just on the lakes uh, of, of Topor. But um, you, you talked about these little ecosystems. And, and when we were, one of the things that we changed at Whakapapa when I was there was the Skywalker will was intended and will be as well, like this, this amazing asset for the region. We really took it personally that we had this almost a stage and we could invite a whole lot of different actors to come up on. So we, we did this project. Yes. Um, we opened a, a buffet restaurant at two, the highest buffet restaurant, um, or highest restaurant in, in New Zealand, 2,020 metres at the top of the gondola. Wow. Um, and we, we did this project from paddock to plate. And yeah, we had this cool. vision that our protein was going to come from no more than 50 kilometres from where you were sitting. Nice. Oh, lovely. So yeah. we went to Waipukawa, which is a, a, an iwi farm, um, and we they were selling into First Light. Oh, yeah. But they wanted to launch their own brand. Awesome. So we, we collaborated with yeah. them and gave them an opportunity. And the, the taste is second to none, I don't yeah. have to tell you, right? Yeah. You, you taste it and it just... Yeah. Mind blown, especially when you know that. And when you know the story too, yeah. And then you could connect through, yeah. like, you know, that's where it was. You can see Probably. the lake from here, there, there it is. And we did that with the local, um, some of the local root vegetables and played around that seasonality. But to, you know, one of the things, in, if I bring it back to Wellington, the cable car is a connector. We have this yeah. stage. How can we give other people an opportunity to shine and be the best versions of themselves. Yeah, cool. Um, and then how do yeah, cool. we propagate, go back to that TEDx quote, here, take it, make it better, pass it on. Yeah. You know, and that has resonated for me from first time yeah. I ever got into the TEDx ecosystem. Well, you need to tell that story. Yeah. Because, well, I'm going to tell that story if you don't mind. Okay. Because this is about you more than me. Yeah. Is because... Uh, the Caesar used to hold the license for TEDx Queenstown. Ah, cool. Um, and I think I did my first TEDx Tiaro in 2012. Yes. Yes, and you were a couple of months behind us. Yes. Literally. Nice. With your first TEDx Queenstown. 
So we had a couple coming up from TEDx, for TEDx Diaro, Jose and Trent, where I first met them, uh, who was working with uh, Caesar at the time. And then we all went down, TEDx Wellington gang went right. down and attended TEDx Squeezedown as well. Which is when we first connected and yeah. got to know each other. And whilst I was down there, there was something, I can't even remember the thing, if you can, that's cool. But the thing, it was something going on at the event. And I was like, that's cool. I remember having a chat to Caesar going, I, I really liked how you did X. And he was like, oh, thank you, cool. I said, do you mind if I steal it for our next yeah, one? Uh, because it's such a, a nice thing. And I think it was like a delicate experience, something oh, yeah. like that, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said to me, take the idea, make it better, yeah. but just give it back. Nice. And I always nice. thought that was just a lovely little hook, which I then yeah. played constantly on repeat to everybody involved with other TEDxs, yeah. uh, which I used to go to, and they used to come to ours. All the TEDxs around New Zealand used to uh, go to each other's events nice. and have a great time. But yeah. I'd always used to say, you know, take our ideas, make them better, yeah. but give it back. Yeah, yeah. Because that's how we get better us all. Yeah. And I think yeah, that totally. has really undermined a lot of the stuff that I do now. Mm. Uh, so I got to thank you for giving me that pearl that I keep polishing yeah, and throwing out. I can't <laughs> pretend that I created it because, <laughs> and, and this was what it was amazing about the TEDx community. Mm. You, we, and I'm going to bring in another dear friend of ours, Kyla, right? Yeah. So Trent mm. and I rocked up to Christchurch. Because I don't know if you know, I was in business with Kyla for a few years. Get out. No, yeah, she was my business partner. My world. Good yeah, yeah. So good keep going. So, so yeah, here's, really good here's a TEDx Queenstown story. Yeah. Um, we used to, there's, there would have been about half a dozen of us. We'd get together for coffee once a week and just shoot the shit. And it, then it morphed to what's topical. Then it morphed to, you know, what, what do we want to do? And, and this is going back in kind of 2011 in Queenstown. So it was a bit sleepier. There was definitely a mud season, off season. <laughs> yeah. So Trent and I tooted off to TEDx Christchurch. And about halfway, I look at him, he looks at me and he's like, should do one of these, yeah, like cool. you know, yeah, cool. jump in the deep end. Yeah. So we snaked our way into the after party. Don't know how. Because you're charming. And found Kyla and go, Kyla, we want to do one of these in Queenstown. And she's like, Great, I'll help you. Yeah. And that's how it was seeded. Nice. But then from there you go, Oh, cool. Applied for my license. They granted it. We need a budget. Oh, where do we start? Because yeah. it's quite different. Yeah. Yeah. So. Kyla sends us this and then oh, nice. someone else sends us this and then nice. we send it and we tweak it and that's always been the yeah. nice. um, take it, improve it, yeah. pass it on, give yeah. it back. Um, and, and, you know, you talked about IP before, these big ERP systems and it was all closed ecosystems. Don't look at, don't look at what I'm doing yeah. and <laughs> sign this and sign yeah, that before right. you. Whereas now it's... You know, we can move so much faster. Oh, yeah. you've solved that. Can I take it? Can I take it? I know. I, I used to hire developers and I go, well, how are you going to solve something that you've never solved before? And if they didn't pretty much go see if there's one somewhere on Google, if it's yeah. a library that someone's posted to GitHub <laughs> or somewhere else, it's like, I get it, you know. Why, re yeah, reinvent, why reinvent, reinvent that? Yeah, yeah, still like an artist, right? Yeah. I think Picasso said that as yeah. well. She's like, everybody needs yeah. to borrow other people's until you create yeah. mastery and then you're doing yeah. something undiscoverable. And, and then... You, you borrow, I leverage off your strengths, you mm -hmm. know, yeah. and, and this is what we're trying to do at Kelburn. We, we've got some strengths, um, but then we've got some really cool creative people. We've got, you know, med service. Yeah. Um, and it, we had this, um, we had a bit of a, a window shatter 
and we were scratching our heads like how the how did this happen right but i was able to call med service and yeah. there's a weather station 50 meters away and it can pull it out down to like the 30 seconds of wow. what the temperature, wind, dew point. Oh, amazing. What, what direction. So you know exactly so what then squall I, or whatever it was yeah. dealt to your window. Wow. Like, do you what want to know at 6.56 yeah. or 6.58? You know, whereas it's like, oh, that yeah. afternoon it was windy. Yeah. Um, amazing. But then how do we leverage off yeah. each other's um, strengths and, and everyone does better? Yeah. And, I, and I think that's what... New Zealand has an opportunity to do. You yeah. talked about artisanal milk on scale, but not at the volumes that we're doing now. How, how do we help everyone do better yeah. mm. we, without yeah. cutting anyone down? Mm. Yeah. But go on. Yeah. I was going to riff off everything both of you were saying and come back to a question that I have, which I haven't worked out, so you okay. can help me. Well, you can keep talking until you figure it out. Yeah. And it's the idea, we're sitting around a table, I suppose, exploring the values of openness and collaborations and intent in all the right ways. However, we also operate within silos and institutional thinking and historical kind of power bases and stuff. I'm thinking about councils and boards and other things, which have a very set way of doing things, mm. sometimes to the bereft of success, mm. where you kind of look and go, why is it like that? It's always been like that. Yeah, but if you do it that way, you, you succeed. No. Shh. So I have a lot to do with, you know, events and people out there who own big things that we can't get access to until we do a lot of what they need to do. And this comes back to what both you were saying and you were teasing out as well. The intersectionality of things is where we, I think, have a lot of fun yeah. at that intersection bit. Oh, that connects with that. Oh, mm. let's force that together. Oh, fun. But we also have to live in a kind of a, not a real world, but a world that also thinks very different to that. In a, in a, this, is, this is the way of thinking and doing. However, you were talking about, you know, even pulling the crops down on, and stock down and, and all these other things. How do we then influence, and this is not a question, individuals more general, how do we influence those, pe those power centres out there? think they're changing like you do I do you, are you know I mean I think me. I know I like I have the luxurious position of but I think most of us do of well, not working with ourselves right so you know one don't work with ourselves mm -hmm. um two is that um it's a weird bit of a side thing but my mother died a few years ago and mm. one of the things that really struck me when I was stopping and doing that reflection on her life that she had been an activist her whole life right so she um she's you know, hippie permaculture gardener. She, um, I, I learnt Tarao as a five-year-old in you know, 1970 in New Zealand. That wasn't Ooh, a common yeah. thing. You know, all that stuff. So I grew up with very strong values. My mother and father, when they were they were married, um, founded Amnesty International in New Zealand. You know, blah blah blah. So, so, but she was a real activist, and I realised that. Um, we need some of those activists to go out and kind of be the flying wedge that drag mm. things forward. But actually the real change makers are the people who build a coalition. Mm. Do you know? So you need those activists to go and kind of poke holes in the sieve almost. But but it's actually when we get together and you and I work on something or, you know, farmers get together or I've gone to a dairy environment leaders conference every year for about five years and you know, it started with a few hundred and now it's a few thousand 
amazing dairy farmers committed to cleaning up the environment and preserving right. nature and so on. And I think it's that you you actually it's like the Rolling Stone gathering people. You you yeah. gather and you gather and you gather and you gather and you gather and at some point everybody else either has to join or die off. Or get out of the way of this rolling stone. Yeah. (laughs) But I I guess I have the privilege of not spending too much time in those spaces. You know, and I do come across them. I do know they're there. I'm not a Mm. complete Pollyanna. But but there are enough of those people to gather with. I love that. Not the coalition idea. Mm. Uh, What do you reckon? I think um, I, I, I play in a different space and I'm probably more shared experiences with you you know you've got to hear these boxes that you have to tick right. and, and, and this and I think to me it comes down to from you made a point before around learning to live with ambiguity yeah and it's that comes from a point in time where clarity was was what was being sought yeah so all this box ticking is is where it's yeah. at yes we still need to be safe and we need to make sure everyone's doing the uh-huh. right thing yeah. and you know there's not going to be some significant adverse reactions. But if we approach it with, let's give it a crack. Yeah. Oh, that didn't work, but this is cool. And, and you move that way. And, and that's that ambiguity, right? Mm. And, and I think um, I've, I've experienced that in the ski industry in the last two years. So um, if you look at South America, in the Southern Hemisphere, you've got Australia, New Zealand, South America, pretty much the three major ski areas yeah new zealand got a season off australia right. f- australia most of it kind of they almost stumbled before they got to the start line yeah right. and it was you know really rigid system whereas new zealand the the three major ski fields got together yeah. involved all of the other industry parts like okay government is worried about all of this like we are just a, a little side note here yeah but if we go here's how we want to do it yeah. Here's how we're going to mitigate it. Here's what we'll do if it goes pear-shaped. They can't, yeah. but not. And, and New Zealand got a ski season off. And then Northern Hemisphere, so I've got some still some good connections with Colorado. They were looking at us going, how'd you guys do that? Mm. <laughs> and it was, here you go. Yeah. yeah. You know, it wasn't, oh, this is proprietary, you're going yeah. to take it. It's, we need the sport to go on. We need this for yeah. our future we need this for people's yeah. mental health there's a lot of industry yeah. you know there's yeah. a lot of jobs at stake so yeah ha, yeah i think um d- d- helping people be able to work in ambiguity to me i love that don't work with assholes <laughs> that's gold i'm gonna take that above your desk tomorrow morning yeah. <laughs> we'll walk in black to be triggered <laughs> Um, I'll see how that goes at council. <laughs> um, but and also, I think people need to know, like, for the most part, no one's out to be an asshole. Yeah, that's They're right. They're just really passionate, but either they lack the ability to see someone else's point of view or to describe yeah. the reason that your point of view does not interject with theirs. Yeah. Or they're risk averse. A lot of people just retreat back into, well, I don't understand. That's new tech, new data, new language. I know this space, I have a power base, so I'm going to stay here. Thank you very much. And see, risk averse to me is just a fancy word for afraid. It's corporate speak for it's afraid, corporate essentially. Fear, right. <laughs> yeah. And so, mm. you know, I love that thing about 
Um, if you see someone who's really afraid, you know, what does it take to um, make it safe for them yeah. to do something, you know? And mm. yeah, risk averse is just fear with some, well, a suit on. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I love that, that description, somewhere. yeah. <laughs> on a t-shirt, I think that should yeah. be a bumper sticker and everything. I'm reminded of my old life in social media and I used to run a couple of companies and one of them was called Social Media for Suits. Right. And it was a play on the idea of teaching corporate boards and, and, and CEOs about this new world of social media. Again, we're talking 2008, nine, so it was very new. And we had, I, I used to have a slide uh, that had ROI on it because yeah, all leaders will it. ask yeah. them, well, that's nice and all, but what's the ROI, right? The yeah. return on investment. And that was great because I could ask, answer their question before they ask. That's important, as you know, when you're trying to convince people to move into Absolutely. a different space. Uh, answer their question first. So I add that up. But I also then threw in, um, there are three ROIs yeah. in the world. There's the return on investment. And I'd say this, I said, which ROI are we discussing? Let's do the first one and be like, first one is more than one, right? So ROI, risk of, uh, sorry, uh, return on investment. Then there's uh, the, the risk of ignoring. Nice. So there's a huge risk okay. of not doing something. Yeah. Um, and then there's a third one, which I can't remember. But it comes back to that risk of ignoring. There's a huge yeah. inherent risk yeah. and danger not to do something, not to try, yeah. not to spend 20% of your massive budget yeah. on radical and yeah. extreme potential yeah. new pathways for success, right? There's a yeah. risk of not doing something, yeah? Totally. And I think that that's where I'm seeing a lot of lack in the leadership space is not allowing themselves to be comfortable in not knowing. Mm. Even though we are can be madly curious, we can also be yeah. stay away from things that, you know, doesn't make us feel that comfortable. Yeah. Like that'd be interesting. Like what companies out there are spending twenty percent or fifteen or even ten percent on mm. those stupid radical ideas. Yeah. yeah. I think you'd be surprised at how many uh Yeah. Yeah, yeah it would be. Yeah. yeah. You know, I um I'm a member of the Institute of Directors, which I, I find to be not one of my most exciting kind of no rock and roll things. But I, as part of that, I've developed um, over the last years. I've developed a bunch of training courses that they teach. So I, I right, des- yes. developed one in yeah. digital um, for directors, one on disruption, and and a strategy course. And then we rewrote the strategy and risk sections of their five day kind of entry level course. And I was teaching that just last week, that risk and, and strategy day. Mm. And I'd say that two-thirds of the risk session that we teach to directors is about risk appetite. So it's about how do you enable risk-taking in your organisation? How do you um, give your CEs guide rails that they can like take risks within? Um, and it, it could be, you know, I sat on an insurance company board and we had a very clear statements around investment risk, you know, what will mm. we prepare to invest in? But there were areas where we, where we wanted specific returns, but there were others that we were willing to put into perhaps private equity or venture yeah. capital or something as a different risk profile. And so I think it's also beholden on boards um, to put that kind of, not just do finance and risk committees, which mm-hmm. I sit on a bunch of, you know, that are about smacking stuff down, but it's also to me, what's the opportunity? What, to what are we missing something, out right? of? Yeah, you know, what's the, mm. what are the parameters I can give you as a CE that say, look, take risk here. You know, actually over here, we want the health and safety to work and we've got to have the equipment work and, 
you know, please pay extra for the right cables or whatever it is. But over here, you know, go for it. Turn that venue into something. If it doesn't do something amazing, so what? It wasn't giving us a great return anyway, you know, mm. or whatever. I'm not yeah. saying that's true. But, you know, like I think that those guide rails, we need to be, yeah, we need to be a lot more permissive. Um, so the challenge, uh, the majority yeah. of the time you're talking about there is in more private spaces. But the public sector in New Zealand, oh, yeah. I think, it needs to really wake up the because it has such a, a still such a stronghold on society and everything else here. Yeah. And the amount of funding that comes from the public sector that flows into the private sector, as we know, all the, the incubators and stuff, yeah. it's public money actually yeah, public that's funding money. majority of those things. Yeah. They've gone to America, it's the other way around, right? No, no, it's not. Mariana Matsukato, you should read her books. Um, we're one of the least of that. So the US, um, so I'll give you an example, right? Yeah. So farming. Um, last year, almost 50% of farm incomes came directly from the government um, in the US. So, um, so the US with the Small Business Administration and so on, you look at someone like Apple, they did yeah. very little of their R&D. Government funded it, they picked it up. Um, mm. Google was all government funded at the beginning and then they picked it up. So what you find in an economy, economies that have really strong innovation have massive public sector funding into basic science. Um, so the way we fund our, our CRIs and everything is kind of the opposite of what you would do. So it's fascinating. Like There's so much research about this yeah. um, that shows So the places that, like Callaghan Innovation then, are they the right direction then? or the Well... I don't want to, you know. I, it's, I'm not like yeah, I only well, I pick think, them out as I a guess crown I think about things like you want to be funding people like the CRIs and universities, but you want them to do basic research. We kind of went right. down a track in New Zealand that said, um, "Who wants it? Is it commercialisable?" Mm. Um, there was nothing in Apple's glass that was commissioned by Apple or that had a customer. Gotcha. It was funded as core research into science institutions. People like Stanford and those guys, you know, MIT, they get funded to do real far out to the future research. Mm. And they don't need a view to commercialization, which is the way we do it in New Zealand. What they do then is that other people come along and cherry pick it. And so if you look, we have this view of venture capital somehow um, investing in innovation and the research is the opposite. Venture capital gets right. in when it's become as de-risked as absolutely possible, and the only thing you're now proving is the business model. You know, all and of probably the, the intersections again, just yeah. picking the pieces, putting them together, putting and them new together, entity, yeah. But you can see I, it makes me mad in New Zealand because I think sure, we, yeah. you know, we, we talk about there being low R and D and stuff, but actually I think our whole science system needs a. There are it's some a really great things that's like, wrong, not yeah. the, the one thing of funding is wrong. It's like right. There's, um, there's this thing, um, the National Science Challenge around science for technology and industry, and yeah. I think they're fantastic because they've been really going out and looking at big challenges and then using public money to create consortia of researchers to deal with really big challenges. Mm. But they don't have to have a straight line to, um, I don't know, a, a net or yeah. a fish scanner or a beehive something. Gotcha, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, a bit of a sideline, but yeah. No, it's important because yeah. I remember visiting, uh, yeah. being really lucky to visit MIT yeah. and the Media Lab there. And if you wander around that place, Amazing, beautiful right? building, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you see on the doors of most of these labs, 
they're sponsored by specific companies like Yahoo, Lego, whatever, really random companies. And what they get access to, I was asking, that yeah. you probably know, is Deal that flow, right? they get to go in once a year or twice a year, a couple of days a year, yeah. and see what everybody is working on before anybody else yeah. sees. That's the only thing they get. But the money they put in compared yeah. to the money that the taxpayer puts in is bugger all. Right, it's that. And they only just get that little window where it's right. But I found that yeah. interesting. Just yeah. they, they literally have a door and they yeah. literally have a, a literal door as well to the thing, but yeah. only a couple of days. So what's behind the Lego door? Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. Yeah. I was really intrigued by yeah. all these logos when I was there. And I was like, oh, they just you know throw a few pennies yeah. in the pot. But by so pennies, what's next so. for you? Because, mm. you know, short attention span, like, <laughs> you know. What's next? If my wife's watching. Not, not nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Stay when I am. Stay out of trouble. No more moving. Um, she knew what she was getting into. She did. Uh, look, I don't know. I, I think I I have loved ambiguity. Yeah. From as far as I can remember. So I never yeah, planned cool. a, my career. I got yeah, a degree nice. in computer science and then taught skiing for ten years. Yeah, cool. And then came back and did some more study and so. I'm drawn to really cool and unique challenges. Yeah. Mm. Um, what what that is, where it'll be. Yeah. Um, there's still lots to do here yeah. in Wellington, and you know these intersections with with cool people. There's there's an opportunity to to really showcase uh, what we have to offer. Yeah. And, and I I do like you know like your analogy of of really high produce. We've got a really high tourism experience that we need to reimagine yeah cool mm. and it's not like i think there's room for your hundred million dollar yachts and yeah. your um you know ten dollar a day backpacker yeah but it just needs to be curated with a holistic approach to it yeah nice. um and and i think it can be done i think it's probably it needs to start now but everyone's just trying to figure out how do that how do i take the next breath mm. um so, so where it is, where we go, I don't know. Yeah, cool. We'll, we'll you know, I, I just like to be in a round room with smart people and yeah. learn some stuff. And now sure. I, I go back and I share it and hopefully yeah, cool. it gets passed on. And, yeah. yeah, cool. Yeah. But what, what about you? What's... No, I think same, actually. Like, um, you know, I just guess that I like wicked problems, you yeah. know, and wicked problems tend to come and find me. And so, you know, uh, there'll be some more. Is that a good you know, thing we've or got. Is that a... <laughs> oh, I mean, there's so much to solve, right? You know, yeah. climate change, child poverty. Mm. We've got a whole lot of stuff that the next pandemic, you know. So, have you boiled that down to, for for someone on the street, mm. to go, oh, now it's this, and oh, now it's coronavirus, and oh, now it's that, and it's really easy to see the world implode on you. How do you boil that down to like? What someone can do in a day-to-day -to, -day to make a difference, yeah, because it's not going to be that silver bullet. It's going to be just continual, you know, marginal improvements, yeah, across, you know, the the world's population. How do you? How do you? I feel like you just answered it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like there's like, look, you know. Um, I, a few years ago, I got to give a talk on like how to unfuck the world, right? I and love that. Um, and I, I, you know, I have this great um, sweatshirt now as a result that Anika, <laughs> some of you might know, Anika Goodall gave me. Um, and I was thinking, actually, there's so many areas you could just start with any one of them. Mm. You know, there's no prioritisation of it. Find something you're passionate about, 
and do something about it. And then the other side of that to me is um, I love that kind of this too shall pass. Mm. You know, the good will pass, the bad will pass, this too shall pass. And I forget it at times, but whenever I remember it, it's like, oh, that's right, you know. We we do really well for a while and then it turns to custard and then that that passes too, you know. We, we're in love and then we're not. Or we, you know, we have our parents with us and then they die. And then we feel really sad, and then we have grandchildren, you know, mm. and then we die. I don't, you know, there's these these cycles. You can't stay in grief forever. You can't stay happy forever, you know. But they they do yin and yang, or whatever the right word is, you right. know. And I think it's the same. Like, yeah, okay, so we're in lockdown for a while. Um, one thing I'm really thinking about is um, what is the explosion going to look like when people are sick of being at home, you know? So. I'm curious at the moment about what happens to um, supermarket food in the US. You know, do people keep going to supermarkets? Do they keep buying HelloFresh and, you know, Blue Apron food boxes and things which have exploded globally Mm. in lockdown? Are they just desperate to go to a restaurant? Are they desperate to go to a bar? You know, how does that play out? And so to me, I can see that um, we'll have a period of renaissance in the food industry, I think, is coming post-lockdown once tourism opens again. People just want, they want experiences, they want curiosity, they want to go do stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe we have another pandemic, maybe we end up going into another lockdown at some point. And then what we do is we start at a new baseline. So, you know, one of the most fun things I did under lockdown was um, 25 of us got together and we're all women in, in the agri sector. And there's a woman called the Lady Butcher who makes like weird, interesting charcuterie, like lamb, ham and stuff. And her partner is a beer maker, so we paid 25 bucks and she couriered us out a blister pack of lamb and beer. And we did, we all got dressed up from like the waist up, had a virtual (laughs) hour and a half evening, girls and I out. And nobody had to pay for a babysitter, no one had to Uber anywhere, you know. And so it was accessible to women on farm and they couldn't have driven two hours into Gisborne to do it or something, you know. So, So I can see that the next time we take that as a baseline and we... We're going to do some something interesting mm. with that. So you could see that explosion of interesting food. You know, maybe we do do some more of it at home post thing, but we do it with a really cool mm. meal that arrives. What our reality has become was almost unimaginable. Yeah. A year ago. So then, looking forward, okay, let's let's play this out a little bit. The next pandemic comes three, four, whatever. What's that next unimaginable? Yeah. That we have to tackle. And are we better prepared now? Because we've, mm. you know, I, I was reading something on the BBC, like UK kids haven't gone to school for a year. Yeah. Mm. So what happens when you put all of those kids who have lacked all of that social interaction back together? Mm. What have we learned to, to minimise the impact there or mm. for ourselves, you know? We're now kind of rolling, oh, yeah, we're back to level two. It's probably worse for Aucklanders right now. It's a lot more restricted. But, you know, what's that next unimaginable? Yeah. And then are we building that resilience or that smarts or, yeah. you know, to to be able to adapt quicker, see the opportunities? But also there's another one for me related. To, like, I'm, I'm going to put that question in my mind. I have no idea, but I'll, mm. I'll think about that. But also, like, we could look at who's thrived under lockdown. So... There'll be a bunch of kids who are neurodivergent, right, that have just loved this. Yeah. Um, there'll be a bunch of people for whom 
um, having a gentler life, you know. I know my son's talked about it being one of the best years of his life. Like, he's got a gorgeous wife, he's got two beautiful children, and he's been able to be home with them mm. for a year in the UK. And yes, he's worked his ass off as well, but, but he's had time with them that has been very different than his mm. first couple of years of being a father, where he was working really hard and travelling yep. the world. And, and so you see some of those things where I hope we also take some of the things that were great for people, you know, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. Um, I know for me, like I've always travelled a lot and I've managed to move a lot of that onto new platforms, you know, like I've become a complete mural queen. Um, I've found we've been able to do collaboration in ways that we weren't able to do face to face. And mm -hmm. after lockdown, I flew down to work with a team I work with in Christchurch and we were face to face and we actually decided to sit in a boardroom together and go back and use the online tools we were using because <laughs> they were better. And so there's some of that stuff where I hope we take some of that, you know, that we don't throw it all out yeah. when we go forward. Um, and I don't think we will because we, you know, I don't want to travel like I used to and um, I always felt guilty about my climate miles and things. And so mm -hmm. in this last year, like I've had a bigger global influence than I've had in most years. So I spoke mm. at a South American dairy conference. I would never have flown to, you know, Buenos Aires to speak at a dairy conference. Um, I spoke, I keynoted at the Indian IDG Top 100 CIO conference. I would never have flown to Mumbai to give a 40 minute talk, yeah. you know. Um, I've done training with people in France and Portugal and um, again I wouldn't have flown there to do it and so I feel like there's some cool things like that opening up where we could take some of those skills and, and apply them globally in a way that we might not have been able to do before. I'm doing some work for the, the Australian um, Meat and Lamb Australia, um, Meat and Land Australia, um, yeah again wouldn't have flown to Sydney to do it. So. So I feel like some of those things come forward and so when we're into the next one, I don't know what the, what the big changes will be. Um, I'm hoping that we might learn to do elimination faster, you know, New Zealand led the world with Taiwan and Japan, a few others in that, but um, you know, those big economies were too scared to do it really, mm. um, way, caused way more problems. But now you see that once yeah. it was proven maybe the the courage came back. Uh, it's, mm. My parents live in Melbourne. Right. Know, they went through, yeah. no, no, it's all right, it's all right, mm. yeah. it's all right. Ooh, yeah. it's not. Yeah. And then three-month lockdown. But yeah. then I was like, cool, you know, you, you saw, I think it was WA. Tonight, 36 hours, go. Yeah. And so yeah. that play proved to be successful. Yeah. And then everyone else is, is copying, so. Yeah, yeah. I was reading that. Great um, question. Um, it's all about great questions. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think, go on, I'm sorry. Uh, just to add a little bit about, especially what your son was saying, I was reading a couple of articles that were mentioning the anthropause that uh, is a new term that wildlife, specifically right. yeah. researchers and experts are throwing out. We're in, in uh, at the moment, our humanity is the Anthropocene. Yeah. Uh, period yeah. Uh, when they we're kind of say what period yeah. of time we're in uh, that's what they say but they've now said in the last year we need a new one within that which is the anthropause because mm. we're seeing a quietening of the world from the humanity perspective humans yeah. activity is just quite flatlined to a certain degree um, compared to what the wildlife has awakened yeah so they're now seeing the rewilding and we all know yeah. about those stories and Dolphin swimming where they don't usually swim and things like that. 
Well, one of the things is a new research paper that looks at they're now monitoring the depth of the sea crust by yeah. only listening to whale song. Oh, wow. Because before they couldn't hear it because right. of the amount of tankers and, right. and, and cruise ships and right. everything else that was in the sea. Now they can pick it up and because they have the technology just wow. to listen to this stuff, they now can work out because of how deep the crust is and how far away they are. Wow. They can just use it like a monitor. Wow. And they're discovering this Amazing. as a new thing. And I'm like, that wouldn't have happened without no. this. Yeah. And I'm not saying, hey, that's great. Pandemic has helped us. But it's an interesting kind of take and I'm reflecting yeah. on there is, like you said, some good, some bad. Yeah. Some let it go, let it pass, and all that sort of stuff. But also, wow, uh, this has been a time I know personally for other people has been the worst, but also the best. Like you say, some people who are introverted are like, I've been training my whole life for this. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, this is fantastic. This I, I can just get dressed from the waist up and do this quietly and then just get on with my work, right? Yeah. This is what, I didn't have to go anywhere. This is fantastic. Uh, but I think for some other humans, maybe we like a little bit of human mm. interaction. Mm. And I certainly uh, think real life still has more bandwidth, but technology is going to be a massive play going forward, especially when this becomes so high fidelity and with the mixing of LiDAR and other stuff, we are just going to be able to do that. And it's going to, you know, it's going to be stark time, you know, boom, boom. <laughs> but yeah. we still need the storytellers, right? And we I still think need, that's yeah, the most important thing yeah. is that we need the navigators, but also, you know, we need, I just look back and I go, I feel like I've watched the entire internet in this last year, right? You know, I've, mm. I've run out of shows I want to watch. But, you know, <laughs> you look at it and you go, this whole part of that human connection thing is also... We want to see great stories. Yeah. You know, we want. We've seen this rise of, like Amazon investing in great storytelling. You mm -hmm. know, obviously we had Netflix as well, but Netflix commissioned more and more content. Indeed. And um, and I think that's a really interesting thing as we go forward. Is that, yeah, okay, we've got a very technology focused future with you know, AR and VR and AI and blah blah blah, um, blockchain. You know, I could play like that whole tech bullshit bingo thing right um, but on the other hand our desire for connection is not just physical connection it's also the connection between reading a great book or yeah. watching an incredible movie or a tv series or something and i i think that you know countries that um i look at how scandy countries have done it really well but mm. invested in training storytellers you know mm. like really done that and you look at new zealand and kids can't do creative writing at high school in new zealand it's not a topic Crazy, right? that's yeah. taught mm. it's not part of the english curriculum it's not part of for you me know, i notice it yeah i notice it when i work with kiwis here when i'm doing the speaker coaching stuff yeah. and it's the lack of just understanding how a, a story works Created, yeah. and then a lack of being comfortable yeah. to be able to share that story in a way where Americans, because they're taught at a very young age to stand up, yeah. you know, when they're like four or five yeah. and they Read go, paper. Yeah, yeah, and 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 their whole cultural ethic is built on the First Amendment of the yeah. freedom, the right to have voice, speech and stuff like that. Come here, yeah. whole poppy syndrome, yeah. all the other stuff. Yeah, Kiwis struggle with just standing and standing yeah, in their story space. and then learning how to share it, yeah. right? Um, so, yeah, the, with the technology, you still need definitely the navigators, the storytellers, the, the translators as well, going, well, this means yeah. that, right? And, and there's got to be a story associated to that. In terms of just uh, aware of your time yeah, and everything like that, end. but wrapping it up a little bit is kind of 
try something different in terms of asking you, what's your big takeaways from this conversation? I love that, like we'd never met, right? And no. I love those, um, you know, we, I think a couple of times you've talked about like intersections, you know, you've used that language and I love that kind of the random intersections, you know, that you, um, I bring, you know, I bring my experience, you bring your experience and in there we can have some real commonality and some kind of thoughts about how things should be or might be, but also, um, yeah, I love that. I love that, mm. that kind of, um, our worlds probably don't cross, you know. I might catch the cable car now, but um, Great. Yeah. my work here is done. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, and and I'll be certainly thinking about that venue because mm. I forget about that venue, you know. Um, mm. But yeah, I think it's that. I love that that the intersections, the connections. You don't know where they're going to be, and mm. we often don't stop and like meet a new human and get an opportunity to have a conversation, yeah. like a. Like, who are you and what's interesting about you? And I think that's a real pleasure to get to do that. Yeah. It's funny, like, you know, you've worked with Kyla and you know lots of these different interesting people that we've intersected. I think for me is I, um, I'm, I'm, I, I try to boil things down into actionable things because mm-hmm. then we can pass it out and, mm-hmm. and do it. You know, and your, your comment before is like, I think you just answered your own question, <laughs> you know. And I've I've been trying to see how do I boil down these great big questions into bite-sized pieces, mm-hmm. and I'll repurpose that thought process into something because I know I've, I've got this amazing team, but who have just gone through. Yeah. Like, imagine you've signed up for a one-hour hit class and you're prepared. I'm going to sweat it out for an hour. Yeah, you know, and, and it's, it's 753 <laughs> days later. Yeah, and it's like, come on. Like, and, and it's just exhausting yeah. and, you know, yeah. trying to keep it grounded like, you know, this too shall pass. Yeah. And, mm. and, and so those are some of the kinds of things that I go, okay, how do I take it out of this context but, up, yeah. you know, apply it and, and hopefully make someone else's life a bit easier because it's been tough. Yeah. Yeah, you know, of course. So. Yeah, everyone's tired. Everyone. It is. It, mm. It's fatiguing, right? Yeah. Um, and... It's, we, we would often talk about, um, you know, seasons being sprints mm. because when it's on, it's on. It's a little bit like uh, I was in, in Blenheim and they were talking about, oh, the vintage is coming up. Yeah. And when it's on, my phone doesn't get answered because yeah. it's on. Yeah. Um, but, um, and now I've just lost track of thought. We were talking about... It'll come back. Yeah. It's got to come back. Actionable. It'll come back at three o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, You'll be oh, texting me going. Yeah. <laughs> but whilst I try to find it, I'll throw that back into you. You. Yeah. What, what did you take? A couple of things. One, I'm going to steal your use of ambiguity, incomfortableness. Or yours. It's or, a conversation. Or the conversation. The there conversation. we go. The ambiguity, in, but being comfortable with it. And uh, I suppose I did not articulate that well recently in the last couple of weeks um, to some things that I found really challenging. And I think uh, it also comes back to what you were saying as well as don't work with assholes. <laughs> and I've been really struggling because I was, I was leading that question because I was struggling with some stuff that, uh, in the last couple of weeks, working with collaborators who really don't want to collaborate. Yeah. What they're there to do is say, Get their give stuff. us some money. Yeah, uh, that's our way. 
you've always done it like that. There's yeah. no room for, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no understanding of the other as well in the room. It's just, boom. And I'm like, yeah, this is just exhausting. Um, so I want to take that and then throw in my ambiguity thing and just be more comfortable with, uh, I'm okay not knowing. Because yeah. um, I st still get asked, like, my folks, what are you going to be when you grow up? Uh, what do you actually do? And all that things. I'm all right with it. It's yeah. just that, yeah, I can see the uncomfortableness in other people yeah. when you describe. Although I do think I've now nailed the next couple of years at least what I'm doing in life. Awesome. So, yeah. Oh, thanks for having us. Mm, it's yeah. been lovely to bring two awesome humans who I've known mm, for a while okay. together and just go, hmm, to sit back and let them rap. <laughs> and what you were saying, I think the, the beauty of experiences like this sometimes happens straight away. Like I know people who have sat, like Bron Thompson, oh, yeah. Spring Low, sat with Paul Atkins, never oh, met. They gone on like a house yeah. on fire. We're then having a visit up in Zealand. He's yeah. showing us around. The chief I'm having lunch with him next week. There we go, right? <laughs> yeah. Come to the cable car and, yeah, I should, and say I hello on the way. Yeah. yeah, okay, cool. But I also think it's, it's the percolation. It's the, infu the diffusion of conversation, which happens way after it's like a month or two time yeah and suddenly you'll come across something yeah. that has been ignited by a, a, something that you said or vice versa and you yeah. reach out and now you've got a reason to mm. and you've got a, a comfortable base to nice. have yeah, that's such really, a connector yeah you we started the there but you are right? you're a super connector super connector maybe i should put that yeah. on super you can have futurist <laughs> i'll have super connector <laughs> Although it does sound like a, some kind of electrical thing, but yeah, that's I'll right. take you it. That's right, you are like a little electrical thing. Like when I get wound up, yes, I can be. But thank you, people. Thank you. That was Creative Welly, episode 12. Thank you for listening. Again, I've been DK. Thanks to John Oteco, who produces the video podcast of this over at Empire Films. And we're hosted again by the lovely David Hamilton at Flash Dog Studios. Please subscribe at creativewelly.com for all the latest episodes and we'll see you very soon.